How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody has the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that we trust in Christ to save us from our sins, and when we and we have eternal, we're given eternal life, which can never be lost. But when we sin, it breaks our fellowship with God, and so when we uh, admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, then uh, He forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and restores us to fellowship, and we resume our forward momentum and growth in the spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be here this evening. We're thankful for the many ways in which you work in the lives of so many people within this congregation and the wonderful uh, stories we have of your grace and the way you sustain us in times of difficulty, in times of trial, and how your word becomes more real to us as we uh, trust in it and as we see your hand in the different events in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for the missionaries we support, for Jim Myers, for Eager, uh, Smolyar, for uh, Chafer Theological Seminary. We pray especially for the conference coming up in March, for the speakers who will be coming, for the uh, different things that will be uh, presented, different papers. And Father, we just pray that uh, all of the uh, technical and logistical aspects will work out fine and it will be a tremendous conference and an opportunity for people to come to a greater understanding of, of your word and what your word teaches about our responsibility as believers uh, in relation to our government and the national entity. Father, we pray now tonight as we study your word that we might be encouraged and strengthened, uh, refocus on uh, your plan and purpose for our lives and come to a, a better understanding of how we are to live the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are now moving forward in Romans. Tonight we're in Romans 5, 3 through 5, just beginning what is in these few verses. This is really a tremendous passage dealing with uh, some of the uh, mechanics and stages within the, the spiritual life and the, and the virtues and values that are part of our spiritual growth. Let me just read through the passage uh, initially. A focal point here is on endurance. So I have titled it, Hanging in There, Why and How. Sometimes we all are tempted to not want to hang in there for one reason or another. There are many things that are enemies of our endurance and our perseverance, not the least of which are just physical factors, distractions, uh, fatigue, uh, many different things that we have to do. All of these things can also distract us from what we need to, need to be focusing on, and they indeed are also part of the test. Romans 5, 2 through 5 reads, "...through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand." and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces uh, perseverance. And I've retranslated this a little bit, as you'll see on the screen, to give you a sense of how the words really connect. In the new, te- in the um, the translators have taken the word um, rejoice in verse two, and then they translated it boasting in verse three. But it's the same word, so I translated it, uh, changed it so they would reflect that by making both of them the same. Rejoice in hope. Uh, not only that, but we also rejoice in adversities uh, because we know that adversity produces endurance and endurance character and character confidence. Now, hope, which I, is really confidence in God, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, two ideas that are present as we look at this at this passage, um, there are two ideas here that don't really resonate very much in a modern American setting, and those are the words endurance and hope. What Paul says, though, is that hope can only be developed through endurance. Therefore, hope is not based on the kind of superficial, motivational truisms that so often characterize churches and sermons today. When we, that's all we get, then we usually run afoul of the shoals of life and we get our attempt at endurance is quickly shipwrecked. Our culture today is one that has generally become soft. We don't have much that we have to really work hard at. Now, we're going through a time of economic recession right now that has been very difficult for some people. This is a time when they're going to see some character qualities develop. They're going to pass or fail the tests that they're going through. Some of us have gone through some uh, difficult times in the past few years. Some have not. But Generally speaking, as a uh, generalization about our culture as a whole, we've become terribly soft. We don't have to work as hard. We don't have to labor as intensely as generations in the past. We have all manner of labor-saving devices, the technology that we have to access the Internet and and to make telephone calls from anywhere we are and to receive them from anywhere we are. Uh, Just amazing. And when you think back on uh, how most of us grew up, which wasn't really that long ago, all things considered, just just the changes that have taken place from the 60s or 50s, uh, 70s, in terms of just what goes on in your kitchen is just uh, uh, really incredible compared to the previous, the way things were 100 years before that. So we've become spoiled in a large sense by our culture. We've also been spoiled in a lot of ways by a lack of rigorous discipline on the part of either parents or educational institutions. Just think about the fact that when, when many of us were, were young, going back to the 50s or 60s, or, and it was not uncommon for parents to give uh, or for parents to spank their kids, now there are some states that have made that illegal. It was not uncommon for school teachers 
to give pops, coaches especially. And uh, I remember when I first taught school in in the 70s, uh, hardly a week went by that I wasn't giving licks to some kid for, for disobedience. One of the most eye-opening experiences I ever had was I had, I had a typical grandmother. She was probably in her 60s by the time I was old enough to attend her fifth-grade class, and she taught at Jones Elementary down the east end of Houston just off the ship channel. And she, she was down there in the barrio and all of her little Hispanic kids. And, you know, to me, she was just a little gray-haired, purple-haired grandmother. And uh, she was probably close to 70 at the time, now that I remember it. I think she didn't retire from HISD till she, back then. She taught until she was 75, and I think she retired when I was probably a freshman in high school. So here she was, just this little gray-haired lady, and I would go down and went down to visit her classroom, and these kids would disobey, and she would take them, and that was an old school. She would take them behind the blackboard, and she took out this paddle that was a, a, a square paddle that, that the shop teacher had made that was um, larger than a ping-pong paddle, and it was about three-quarters of an inch thick, and it had... It had holes about that big around board through it. And when she, she would, uh, she would give those big Hispanic boys paddles and, you know, they would come out of there with tears running down their eyes. I mean, and she wasn't beating them or being abusive, but in the way people have been retrained to think about this in our culture, that would be abusive today. She'd be fired. She'd be, she'd be out of a job. She probably did a better job than Hardly anybody. She had a master's degree. For a woman to have a master's degree in education back in the 40s was just unbelievable. But she did. And um, but but now we have a system. In fact, I heard today that another group of psychologists, the witch doctors of our modern culture, came out with a study that's saying not only will will uh, is spanking bad for children. It will make them aggressive. It will make them argumentative. It will make them much more uh, uh, respond more negatively to stress as they get older. And all these, or the, all these horrible things. I thought it was so great today. I just had to turn on uh, Fox News while I was eating lunch, and Megyn Kelly was talking about it. And I forget who the man was that she had on as a guest, who really wasn't that much against against spanking, but she was bringing an expert on who had years of experience in the field and turned out to be her mother. <laughs> and so she was, uh, she had started this thing off with a clip of a number of times of, of her when she had been on different shows and gotten into a heated argument with Bill O'Reilly or somebody else over some topic and uh, clearly showing her aggression and her uh, trend towards uh, towards uh, maybe being a little violent, at least verbally. And so she asked her mother about that. She said, do you think you're spanking me, made me that way? She, and her mother said, when you acted that way, that's why we spanked you. <laughs> See, these psychologists, they're, they're dealing with a what-if issue here. They don't know what those kids would have been like without having been spanked. So, see, they don't have a an objective norm against which to evaluate anything. And maybe that's exactly why those kids were getting spanked is because they had those trends already and their parents were trying to drive it out of them. 
But um, who knows more about this, the Bible or some modern 20th century psychiatrist who's got limited data. But it's produced a, a culture that is soft. Now, there's areas where it's not so soft. There are, uh, there are areas in the military. There's areas in athletics because these have to deal with the, the reality of, 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 of competition and, and genuinely losing and winning in situations where, where it counts. But when a culture becomes soft, when we lose a sense of, of, of discipline and teaching mental toughness, a, a, a firm, tough mental attitude that's able to stick to things, and no matter how difficult they come, then we be, we create more and more of a of a weak culture, and we create create more and more of an effeminate culture. And when you combine that with the influences of the rise of, of radical feminism in the '60s and '70s, and the limitations on certain things that you can do in terms of tra- training boys, and there have been some good studies that have come out, and some people who have tried to raise this issue in the last 10 or 15 years that we're acculturating our young boys to a feminine ideal, the metrosexual, you know, not the strong, uh, virile male type who is a good leader. And if you doubt that, we have a classic cultural example of the result of where all this goes if you go over to Eastern Europe, because this is the kind of thing that took place in the, in the former Soviet Union. And they did a lot of uh, social experimentation uh, with, with marriage and with, uh, with parenting. And now they, because they, in, in that kind of a so extreme socialist culture, it destroyed initiative in the men. And now when one of the things I've observed for, for uh, almost 20 years of going over to the former Soviet Union is that... Uh, a, a, it's a generalization, but a vast number of the males are drunks, and they're not motivated, but the women are. But the women too often got married or got pregnant or both too young, and the guy turned out to be abusive and drunk, and now they're divorced, and she's living alone with a child or two and trying to make make ends meet and get an education and everything else, but they're, 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 it's hard to find male leadership because, and, and so I'm trying to say that this is more than just one facet that affects this. We live in a culture today when we analyze many of our social problems and our decline. It, it, it's a result of numerous, numerous elements. It's, it's systemic, and we have to uh, address it on a number of fronts. And too often those fronts end up being just symptoms of an even deeper problem. And that deeper problem really is a spiritual problem and the rejection of God ultimately because everything goes back to, to that particular problem. But when we spoil our children and we have a culture that has spoiled them uh, uh, intentionally and unintentionally over the last uh, 50 years, it wipes out this sense of, uh, a self-reliance in our children. Uh, unwittingly, we create in them an attitude of entitlement and dependence. In fact, today or yesterday, I read the articles on it today, a study came out indicating that government dependence in the two years of our current presidential administration has increased 23%, according to the introductory statement of that article. American dependence on government has soared to an all-time high 
under the Obama administration, growing 23% in just two years, according to a new study by the Heritage Foundation. The Conservative Research Group's 2012 Index of Dependence on Government revealed that 67 million Americans are now banking on some federal program, including programs related to health care, housing, welfare, education subsidies, and other government programs that were traditionally provided to needy people by local organizations and families. And so as Social Security has increased, well, uh, uh, excuse me, Medicare, Medicaid has increased, and now we have uh, health, this new health care uh, monster that's, that's coming down the pike, it just creates more and more dependency, um, a dependent attitude, a dependent mentality among people, and that prevents them from being mentally tough and having this sense of I'm going to face my problems in life, and it may be difficult, it may be hard, but I have the resources to do it. And as Christians, we know that those resources are the resources that are provided for us uh, spiritually in Christ. But this is not likely, a change is not likely to happen. Four features of our culture that lead to weakness and failure and defeat in all of this is, number one, we have created a culture where everyone looks for a free, easy solution to the problems. Everything in life is quick now. We have drive-through windows. We have... Uh, we can just uh, tap on something on the screen of our cell phone a couple of times and we uh, have exactly an answer to our question or we have immediate information or we ha- have, have sent in an order for our to-go order to pick up at a, at a local restaurant. Whatever it is, we're used to instant response, instant gratification. There's no longer that uh, need for discipline to wait. This impacts one of the studies I've read Uh, saying this is one thing that impacts the involvement of young people in church. Uh, A couple of us were chatting right before church and overheard a conversation talking about uh, parenting. But uh, one of the problems that has occurred in our culture across the board is that churches, especially the ones who where where the people are expected to exercise a measure of discipline and come and sit in a in a pew and listen to a lecture for uh, 45 minutes or an hour, uh, that th- these churches can't get younger people under the age of 30, 35 to come and be involved in midweek. Certainly, it doesn't matter whether they're Jewish, Roman Catholic, um, Baptist, Methodist, whatever they are, Bible church, because the discipline of approaching education in that manner has been taken away from them through various uh, various methodologies that are have been used in elementary schools uh, for the last uh, thirty or forty years, as well as uh, the fact that uh, they don't they don't see that that need for learning. They think differently about it, and so they don't have the discipline to come and sit and and learn. And this is. Uh, uh, is having a tremendous uh, uh, impact. They want answers quickly, and the Christian life isn't something that happens. It's you can't just learn 15 points and then go um, and be an expert on the Bible and understand the Word of God and God's plan for your life and how to grow spiritually. It takes the rest of our life. We ha- the Christian life is based on a long-term perspective. It's not based on a sense of immediacy. So when we look for stress-free, easy solutions, that's automatically counter to what the Bible teaches. We have this quick-fix convenience comfort mentality. I remember a classmate of mine 
uh, from seminary, graduated, taught at Capital Bible Seminary for a few years in the early 80s and wrote an article for one of the theological journals in which he applied this whole issue to seminary education. And I've seen it get even worse since then is that you have men in congregations who don't, uh, they don't want to move across the country to go to the best seminary to get their training to be a pastor. They, their first question is, well, can I take those courses online? See, they, they, they don't want that rigorous discipline of the classroom. That's, that's the last thing they really want. They don't, they can't articulate it that way, but, but that, that, that's been bred out of them. Now, if they're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, they understand they're going to have to go to a, 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 a good law school or a, and if they really want to excel, they're going to have to go to a good law school or a good medical school, and they may have to move away from their hometown. But I've just been amazed at how, at this shift. And I look back to many of the men that I was in seminary with and those that were just about a half a generation ahead of me, and they moved from all over the country. Once they realized they had the gift of pastor-teacher and they moved to Dallas, Texas to get the very best education they could because they understood the, the principle that if you wanted to glorify God in your life, you had to do the very best. And they understood this high standard. And so they, they, they packed up their bags and they recognized that they had to trust God to provide for everything. And now you have a generation of young men who aren't sure if they can trust God to provide for them and their family, and so they don't move across. Just make it easy for me. They're wimps. They're spiritual wimps. They really are, and they don't know it. They don't know how to trust God and have that sense of confidence, which is what this passage is talking about. That is what is at the base of giving believers that, that really solid uh, mental attitude of trust and confidence uh, in God. A third factor of our of our culture that <clears throat> runs against runs counter to, to the spiritual uh, principles is that we value entertainment over hard work and accomplishments and success. Just look at what's happened in this presidential uh, um, primary mess in the Republican Party. A couple of weeks ago, Mitt Romney released his his uh, had to release his, his tax information, his, his tax returns, and all of a sudden you hear even conservatives saying, oh, "Look how much money he makes!" and and he only paid fifteen percent taxes. Well, that's because most of his money is invested in uh, various long term investments, and fifteen percent is a capital gains rate. He's not working like other people are working, but they don't understand that. They just see see that difference. So this jealousy comes up, and, and they, they don't look at it and go, isn't that incredible? This guy is such a tremendous success. Look at the, the he's, he's able to take what he was given and multiply it and make even more money. That's, that's a biblical principle, that we should take what we've been given and then multiply it and, and use it in other areas. But, but instead, we... We value entertainment and we value handouts better than we do hard, more than we do hard work, accomplishments, and success. And finally, the bottom line on this is we've rejected the values of our forefathers. And when a generation rises that rejects its heritage, rejects the values and the beliefs of its, uh, of its, of its predecessors and of its forefathers, then that culture is doomed to absolute failure and collapse because the next generation does not have any kind of connection whatsoever to the past. 
And once they sever that connection to the past, then they have no anchor anymore, and they'll be cast adrift, and it'll be easy for them to become become slaves because that's what's happened in their mentality. When you lose mental toughness and you lose that ability to be independent and to face the challenges, the, the tough times of life, the adversities of life, with, with confidence and hope and certainty, then you're independent. The contrast is you become, you develop a dependent mentality. And so as we've developed an effeminate culture, as we've de- developed a spoiled culture, we've developed a dependent culture. And dependency is a slave mentality. And slaves can never, ever appreciate freedom, and they can never exploit liberty for greatness. In fact, they begin to turn against those values because it's something that's completely beyond their thinking and something that they consider to be uh, unachievable. And so we're, we're raising a generation, and we've raised a generation that are missing the key ingredient, which is a mentality of, of self-reliance and independence and mental toughness. They've lost what it means to have a positive positive mental attitude. So in these verses in Romans 5, we have the ABCs of the Christian life summarized in these three or four verses. Adversity builds Christian character. See, it's ABC. Adversity builds Christian character. And God says there's no other way to build Christian character than to face adversity with with the promises and the provision that God's given us. Anything else is a shortcut and destroys the process. So as we look at these, this, this section, we see this tremendous implication that Paul's drawing out of our justification when he says in verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's what we have at salvation. But then he's going on, he's talking about the spiritual life, the post-salvation spiritual life. He says, and we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in confidence in relation to the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in adversities. That is a strong word that he's using here. It's the Greek word kalkomitha. We'll look at it later. And it has the idea of boasting. Think about what it's like when you have really accomplished something and you want other people to know that you've accomplished something. You you surmounted a challenge in your life and you made it. You want to go tell your friends about it. Look at what I accomplished. That's the idea here. We exalt, but not in something that we've done, but it's in the glory of God and in God's provision for it so we can rejoice in adversity. The basic Greek word here, that's, it's translated tribulation in some passage, some versions, but that gets confused with detribulation. It's just the word uh, flipsis, which means adversity, difficulties, challenges. And we all face them. We face medical challenges. We face health challenges. We face uh, financial challenges. We face uh, challenges related to dealing with family members, dealing with parents, dealing with children, dealing with friends, dealing with coworkers. And we all have, have uh, these, these aspects in our lives. You can't run away from them. That's our tendency is just to, to just leave it. But we have to learn to go through it. And that's this character quality that Paul mentions in verse 3. After we rejoice in adversities, and we, the reason we rejoice is because we know that adversity produces endurance. And the, and the basic idea of endurance is not avoiding the problem or avoiding the conflict, or avoiding the difficulty. It's learning how to trust God in the midst of the difficulty. 
that you can't get away from that. And so we have to learn to trust God. And when we're really trusting him, and this doesn't happen easy. You don't go home and say, okay, I got the promise. I got it down tomorrow. No matter what happens, I'm going to move through this, and I'm just going to uh, exalt and be excited about uh, whatever difficult things come my way. It doesn't happen that way. It takes, it, it, it takes years to, to learn to do this because our sin nature is really bent on a pseudo-self-reliance, an arrogant self-reliance that is contrary to God. So uh, we know this principle, foundational biblical principle, adversity produces endurance and endurance character. This is in a positive sense, a sense of approval here. It's a word, as we'll see when we get there, that is uh, difficult to translate for some, and many translations do it different ways, but it has this idea of becoming approved in your, in your character and in who you are so that it, it indicates uh, spiritual maturity and growth. Endurance produces character and character confidence. So there's a process, and, and so, but, but didn't the per- person who first began this have hope? And we'll see that he did. There's a hope that we have at the beginning of salvation. It's not a mature hope. It is a, it, it's a hope that is limited because we're just spiritual babies, as, after all, and we're just beginning, and that has to mature. And so that, that hope, and as we go through life, and we, we go through this cycle again and again and again, and then verse 5 reads, Now hope, which is confidence in God, does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that shows the relationship of the love, uh, you know, God's love for us as a foundation for facing the challenges of life, the provisions that he has given us. So as we get into this, I'm going to focus a lot on these two words, endurance and hope. Uh, hope is something that is, uh, as a second word, is something that's lost also on our culture because they don't have anything they can put their confidence in. They don't have anything of certainty that is going to endure throughout the ages, and that's the sense of the word hope in the Scriptures. It's not wishful optimism. It's not just looking inside of oneself and, and ginning up uh, a, a measure of confidence in something so that they can go forward. It's not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is a certainty that is focused upon the solid rock of God's character and the solid rock of the Scriptures. So we're going to begin uh, by looking first at hope, the doctrine of the believer's hope in Scripture. And tonight we'll probably just get through part one, which is sort of a summary overview of Paul's use of this term in Romans. Paul uses the term hope 13 times in nine verses in Romans, 13 times in nine verses. Out of the 36 times that Paul uses the word hope, 13 are in Romans. That's a little over a third. So in in Romans, we get a real glimpse into uh, the whole doctrine of hope that we find in the New Testament. So 13 of the 36 uh, uses in Paul are found in Romans. Now, hope, it's interesting. We think about the fruit of the Spirit. fruit of the Spirit is a result of walking by the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. Don't have hope in there. Hope is not a fruit of the Spirit, but hope is certainly a, a biblical 
value. Uh, it is a character quality that is related to the concept of, of perseverance. It's a mental attitude that, we, as we'll see, is developed in the believer through the application of Scripture. It's not apart from Scripture. It's not apart from walking by the Spirit, but it is produced through Scripture as we come to understand who we are in Christ, what we've been given in Christ, and where we're headed in Christ. Our destiny is not a, a, a temporal destiny. It's an eternal destiny. It's the messianic kingdom. And that has to become real to us because that's what enables us to face the trials and tribulations and adversities of today. It's this hope that is always oriented to our future destiny that gives the believer confidence to face the circumstances of today. It is through this hope that we're strengthened mentally, that, that we become tough so that we can endure uh, even some of the most extreme persecutions that have occurred in history from uh, cultures and governments that have gone against Christians. You see here these incredible stories about the Christians who have, have endured. And today there, there's a lot of persecution among Christians in, um, in Iran. I have read that the uh, percentage of conversions from Islam to Christianity in Iran is among the highest of any conversion rate in any Muslim culture in all of history right now because of what is going on there. And so Ahmadinejad and the, and the imams may be uh, running Iran into the ground and threatening to destroy Israel, but as the people suffer more and more, they realize the bankruptcy of Islam and are turning to Jesus Christ. So we need to be in prayer for those people. But one of the byproducts is that they get they, they go through persecution. They become arrested. They get thrown in jail, and some of them uh, can't handle it. They can't handle the uh, and they and they revert and they reject Christ and they go back into Islam. Uh, simply because they can't bear what's happening to their to their families, so they don't have the mental toughness yet from their spiritual growth to be able to face the unpleasant circumstances and to face it with joy. That's that's what's distinct about scripture and a spiritual life is that we don't grumble and complain. Who am I talking about? We don't grumble and complain about our circumstances because we understand who's in charge and we understand that the test is to face that with joy and not with anger and hostility and and depression. This is all wrapped up in Paul's concept of hope. We have to learn to be mentally tough and the Holy Spirit can develop that for spiritual mental toughness. So when we look at what Paul says about hope here, we, in, in Romans especially, we see a, a, a depiction of what is said in the rest of the, of the uh, New Testament. When I was a kid growing up, whenever I was engaged in uh, anything that might be a little bit difficult or sometimes a lot difficult, and I wanted to just bail out, my mother would always say, winners never quit and quitters never win. You're not going to quit. And it was really tough to argue with my mother. Some of you know the story about my mother. She had three kinds of polio, encephalitis, hepatitis, kidney infection, a bladder infection, and me two months early. And they had to take her out of the iron lung because the uh, 
polio had completely overtaken her diaphragm and abdominal muscles, so she couldn't breathe at all on her own. So they just think about that, ladies, those of you who've gone through uh, uh, giving birth, just think about what that's like to give birth when you have no abdominal muscles and you can't breathe and you can't push. And so they pulled her out of the iron lung, pulled me out and pushed her back in, and um, she overcame a tremendous amount just on on her, her understanding of the word and just that mental toughness that that generation developed coming out of the uh, coming out of the depression, and so she would never ever allow me to ever give in to any mentality of giving up. Now, when we look at the world system around us, there's still, as I pointed out earlier, areas within our culture where endurance is still taught and still valued. It is an analogy within culture that Scripture uses again and again in order to teach these principles to to believers. It's a familiar analogy, and Paul uses it many times. He uses analogies from athletics, and he uses analogy from warfare and from combat. And he sometimes blends them together, as he does in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following, where he talks about the fact that we do not wrestle, an athletic term, against uh, flesh and blood, but against forces of this darkness, principalities and powers. And he goes on to describe the armor that Christians are to wear in spiritual warfare. So he blends those two metaphors together. And if you're going to be a success in either field of athletics or the military, then you have to develop a a mental attitude of toughness. This is what is uh, developed in boot camp when uh, young men and women are now now go into military service. They have to go through boot camp, and and the ones that fail are the ones that just can't measure measure up. They can't develop that that mentality of, of toughness and discipline. And to be a success in anything in life, we have to have a sense of discipline, self-discipline, and being able to persevere uh, beyond any difficulties and and hurdles. One of the uh, foremost writers and thinkers in the area of the military was uh, Captain Sir Basil Henry Liddell Hart, who wrote uh, on military strategy. He was... uh, Born in 1904, died in 1970, and coming out of World War I, he uh, really embarked upon his life's work, which is studying and analyzing military strategy. And he made the statement, brilliant observation. He said, the profoundest truth of war is that the issue of battle is usually decided in the minds of the opposing commanders, not in the bodies of their men. Now think about that. It's not technology. It's not how physically fit they are. It's the mentality that's in their commanders. It's the mentality that is imbued into the men. Winners are shaped not just by physical talent, because there are a lot of people who perhaps have greater talents than some great athletes, but the great athletes become great because they're disciplined, because they also develop a mental attitude of toughness. 
And so this this principle is tr- very much true for every Christian. It, again and again, even some of the verses that we're going to go to in our study, I want you to notice how many times there's a Paul points us to mentality to think this way because of something you know. It always comes back to knowledge of the word. Now that's not the end game, but if you don't have the knowledge of the word and you don't understand the biblical principles, then we can't develop the kind of mental attitude uh, that we need because we don't have the we don't have the facts. Now as another example of this is in the area of of athletics, in the area of athletics. And I've got a couple of quotes here from a modern athlete who has, in a couple of different areas, run the race, so to speak, and won. He uh, struggled against uh, cancer and won, and he also uh, is a record holder in the number of times that he has has uh, won in uh, his, his cycling uh, races and that's Lance Armstrong. And uh, yet when you read what he writes uh, about his life and athletics, he, he rejects God. His, but he talks a lot about confidence, and he talks a lot about a winning mentality. But for him, all it is is reaching deep inside of himself and, and as I said, really just pulling himself up by his own bootstraps and believing in something to believe in something that can get him past uh, the hurdles. He said... Um, he has said that hope is the only antidote to fear. That's a good observation. That's a, that fits with what Scripture says. Hope is what enables us to overcome the, the obstacles of, of fear, the obstacles of anxiety, the obstacles of uncertainty and worry. He also stated at one time that knowledge is power, community is strength, and positive attitude is everything. And see, even... Uh, as my mother also used to say, even a blind hog finds an acre now and then. And unbelievers capture certain elements of what I call creation or establishment truth, and he certainly has done that. But one of his quotes that I ran across not long ago, I think, is something we should all pay, pay attention to, especially when you're going through difficult times. Develop a long range, which may be years, of looking at at certain difficulties. He said, pain is temporary. Whatever the pain is you're facing, whatever the difficulty is, that fits. Pain is temporary. It may last a minute or an hour or a day or a year, but eventually it will subside and something else will take its place. If I quit, however, it lasts forever. That surrender, even the smallest act of giving up, stays with me. So when I feel like quitting, I ask myself, which would I rather live with? In his next book, he summarized it in a more succinct manner. He said, pain is temporary. Quitting lasts forever. I think that's a good point. In the New Testament, God reveals to us that the critical element in the Christian life is our volition. Do we have the willingness to stick it out, what my mother called stick to Do we have the discipline to focus on the Word of God, to think about it, and to be motivated by the Word of God? That's what our, the tests in life are all about. And sure, we fail, but it, it's not devastating. It's not, just because you fail doesn't mean you need to quit. Failure just means you have to figure out another way to persevere. 
Quitting just means you have an, another opportunity to go forward. And when we fail, we just confess it, we move on, forget what's behind and press on, as Paul says, to the uh, high calling of Jesus Christ. And that is because we come to understand what the end game is, and that is defined in Scripture by, uh, well, one word that defines it is, is hope. And endurance means to hang tough, to stay focused on the, etern- on the eternal objective so that we don't give up. Now, this word hope, as I pointed out, is found all the way through Romans. The first place it's mentioned is in the chapter we just finished, Romans 4.18. Romans 4.18, to remind you of the context, and it's not hard for you to turn back to it if you're in Romans 5, just somewhere else and probably on the same page, talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith, as we study, is focused on a, on a promise. Faith always has an object, and that object is some statement of God, some promise of God that we're, we're grabbing a hold of with, with our faith. Faith is knowledge. We know that to be true. Modern man is, has misled us into thinking that faith is different from knowledge. But the Bible and God tell us that faith is knowledge. It's just not based on something seen. It's based on the testimony it's based on something that's not seen, but we're relying upon the testimony of someone who is reliable, someone who is an eyewitness, and that's God, someone who created everything and designed things to be the way, the way that they are. And so that, that Abraham is focused on this promise of God, and that promise of God is something that he came to realize would not be seen or fulfilled in his physical lifetime. But God would still be true to that promise, even though it might not be fulfilled for millennia. When we look at this verse, we read that the who speaks of Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed. And that would be better translated is against all hope, on the basis of hope, he believed. With the first hope being the kind of hope that man has, the second hope being his confidence in God so that he became the father of many nations. That was part of God's promise to him. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. This was a promise in Genesis 15:5. But let's look at the context here a little bit. It's illuminating. If we look at the context, in verse 14, Paul started this section by saying, for those who are of the law are heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of this promise. When's they, when are they going to realize that inheritance? When is Abraham going to realize that inheritance? See, that's still off in the future. So hope has a future orientation, and that's, that's right there in the context. Those, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. He's talking about how legalism is, is, is contrary to faith. Verse 15, he goes on to say, because the law brings about wrath, for where there's no law, there's no transgression. We studied all of this before. And then in verse 16, now that we have the context, therefore he says it's a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure. See, there's a certainty there. The promise might be sure to all the seed. Now here we have this word seed again, and and it is a word, as I pointed out last time, that in both uh, Greek and Hebrew is a collective noun. Now, a collective noun means that, that it has a singular form, but it can have either a singular meaning 
or a plural meaning, much like our word deer. You can see one deer or two deer or ten deer. So deer can have this double nuance, and this is what comes into play in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 16. But before I go there, 4, 16 and 17, Paul uh, Abraham recognizes his promise to the seed and that this promise will be fulfilled to all of those who are of the faith of Abraham, all of those who imitate the faith of Abraham. He's not saying that all of them become Jews, but all of them become the spiritually related to Abraham because they imitate his, his faith. This is this, uh, and then verse 17 says, As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, in Galatians 3, 16 and 17, we had this same uh, word referenced. I got, did get a question this last week in an email about this. Well, couldn't seed refer to, or, or Christ refer to something else, such as just the anointed? And, and the answer to that would be no, because there's no basis for that anywhere anywhere in the context. And what this passage is saying is that that the promises of the covenant were made to Abraham and to his seed, his descendants. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to use that singular sense, which really isn't used in any of these other original uh, passages from the Old Testament. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to take that singular sense of the word seed, and he's going to uh, say, see, there's another sense to this because it's singular. It also refers to one seed, which is Christ. And so this is, I can't interpret the Old Testament this way, but Paul can because the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to do this. This is what, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Dr. Robert Thomas, who was here several years ago at the uh, Chafer Pastors Conference, this is what he refers to as inspired, the inspired full sense of an Old Testament passage or inspired census, uh, census plenure. It's when Paul, uh, Paul, or writer of the New Testament, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, goes and uses an Old Testament passage uh, and gives it a meaning that you wouldn't ever get from just reading it in, in its original context. But because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate divine author of, of both the Old Testament passage and the New, he has a right to assign it new meaning. We don't. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul f- hones in on this one word, and, and, and this also emphasizes why uh, even, even the grammatical sense of plurals or singulars is significant in terms of God's, God's revelation, that inspiration extends down to those, that level of detail in the text. So um, Romans 4.18 goes on now. This is the verse we were looking at where, uh, Paul, uh, where uh, Paul says, who contrary to hope or uh, uh, contrary to hope on the basis of hope, he believed. Now that tells us something about hope's relationship to belief. Hope focuses on the promise that faith is grabbing hold of. So hope is related to faith. Faith is the act of belief. Hope is that confidence. It's, it's faith on steroids. It takes it to another level because you're focusing on something in the future that you have a certainty about that strengthens your faith today. And so even though all the empirical data, all the experience that Abraham said, had uh, uh, mitigated against the fact that he was 
that he would ever have children and that Sarah would ever have children because they were way too old to have children. But he believed God, and he knew that God was able to make that happen. So he believed the promise. That's why verse 19 goes on to say, Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise. Notice hope is related to promise and faith. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So hope focuses on a future reality. And when that becomes more real to you today than whatever the experience it is that you face, no matter how difficult it is, and, and we, we hit stages. Some of you who are younger have just maybe seen this with your parents. But as a pastor, I see this more and more. When you get older, we get into our 70s and our 80s, and we face degrees of health problems. And it may not even be a situation when you're, when you're older. You may have something suddenly happen like happened in my family in the last, uh, in the, in the last week. My wife's sister just, uh, slipped on a slippery, uh, wet bridge and doing her job in Austin and fell and, and, uh, had multiple fractures in her ankle and crushed her uh, right ankle, which is your driving foot. And uh, had to have a surgery and have to have another surgery and can't put any weight on it, lives alone. And, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you just you become very dependent upon people. And, and the difficulties that we face, we don't expect. And when you get older and you're, you're, you're married and all of a sudden your spouse begins to uh, lose their memory and get Alzheimer's, or you do, uh, these are things that, that, that we all can face, or they have some other debilitating disease. What gets you through that is the confidence in God. And sometimes when I go to the hospitals and I visit with people, I'm just, I'm just uh, blown away by their faith and their confidence in the Lord. We've got some great believers in this church, and they have great confidence in God. And I just wonder, who in the world taught them this? I didn't do this. It's great to see that. It's a great testimony, but we have to learn that. And whatever it is we're going through now is just a training ground for what we're going to go through later on. And, and that's the real test is are we going to stick in there? Are we going to hang in there? And are we going to uh, fulfill uh, the plan that God has for us? Now, the next time that we run into this verse is in Romans chapter 8. I mean, this word hope is in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to skip through 5, but... We find it in, in Romans 8, 20 and 24. For the cre- in 20 reads, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, when it was a creation subjected to futility, what's that talking about? That is talking about when Adam sinned and the entire universe came under the judgment of sin. It didn't just affect Adam and his relationship to God and even her relationship to God. It affected all of creation. It affected the serpent. It affected the animal kingdom. It affected all of nature. At that point, the second law of thermodynamics went into effect, which states that uh, uh, everything moves to a state of entropy, that is, uh, disorder, uh, non-usable energy, technically. Uh, it all begins to run down. That started with, with Adam's fall. All of creation was subjected to futility in hope because there's a plan. It's moving towards an end game that comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now then Paul, a couple of verses later, is going to say, for we were saved in this hope. 
this confident expectation. There is a promise that's given to us at salvation, the gospel, and that's the promise of eternal life. And we're given that hope, that confidence, and that too is what uh, gives gives uh, sustenance and strength and stability to our present life. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. See, it's not based on empiricism. It's not based on rationalism. It's based on the revelation of God who tells you that this is the way it is and are you going to believe him or not. Now, when we look at the context of Romans 8, we're struck by another similarity. If you go back to just verse 18, what Paul, we discover that Paul is talking about is suffering again. He's talking about adversity, going through hardship here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, whatever it is that you're facing, for I consider that that suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What he is saying is that that's such a minuscule little shadow when it's compared to the brilliance of the glory of God's plan and future for us that that it's not worth focusing on and being upset about. That's why Paul says we shouldn't be grumble or complain. And the only way we can reach that is when we get this perception that the most difficult things we face today are just a, a shadow compared to the glory of God and the glory of God's plan. He goes on to say in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation, here he's personifying the creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now this will occur in the millennial kingdom when the believers, church age believers, come back with the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the curse is rolled back during the millennial kingdom and then in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no curse. That's the context of 820. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. See, there's something in every one of us that when anything bad happens, we get, there, there's something deep inside. We know this isn't how it's supposed to be. This is wrong. This is wrong. I shouldn't have to face this. You know, my parents died. My best friend died. My dog died. It shouldn't be this way. You're right. That's because Adam sinned. We live in a fallen world, and we all come to grips with this every single day. But as believers, we have information that defines what that fallen world is about and that it's not a permanent state, and this is just a temporary state, and that's what gives us hope. We know what the end game is, and there's a reason and a purpose, even though we don't know it. There is a reason and a purpose for whatever it is we go through. See, that's where he's going to end up in Romans 8.28, which is a verse you know, that God, uh, that um, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, because God and his sovereign plan is going to pull it all together for the good. Romans 8.22 goes on to say, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's not just you. It's not just about our little self-absorbed problem with our little difficulty. It's the whole creation, everything, every atom, every molecule screams in agony because of the curse of sin. Not only that, Paul says in verse 23, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's our hope. We also are given the Holy Spirit to enable us to get through this. 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? And then in Romans 12, 12, Paul says, we rejoice in hope, we're patient, that same word we'll see in our passage, enduring in adversity. Enduring in adversity. We hang in there. Hope is related to enduring in adversity and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is how we express our dependence on God and we express those groans uh, where, we're, where we just express the, the, all the difficulty that we're facing in life. We take it before his throne of grace. And then uh, in the final chapters of, uh, chapter of Romans, Paul says, for whatever things were written before, that's Old Testament scripture talking about the old lives of the Old Testament believers. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience, that is, same word, endurance, hupomene, through the endurance and comfort that's taught in the Scriptures. That's the idea there. This is what's taught there, that we might have hope. Where do you get hope? From the Scriptures, from those two verses you memorized. Well, I keep, you know, when you're driving down I-10, you can't stop and pull out and get your Bible. Now, you get it on your, your iPhone, but we don't want you looking up Bible verses on your iPhone while you're doing 70 miles an hour down I-10. We have to learn the Scriptures and make it part of our soul. See, you, 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 there's still that process today. It's not how you grow as a believer today. Is it any different than how it was in the first century, second century, third century? Technology doesn't change anything. It's still the same. Now, technology make it may make it more some of the scripture more accessible, but it doesn't make spiritual growth easier or different. Romans fifteen five says, "Now may the God of patience and comfort." The God of endurance grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And then in the last verse of Romans, Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope, he is the God who gives us hope. He is the source of our confidence. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. See, there's the fruit of the Spirit. But it's related to the hope that God gives us, which is in the promises of his word. I may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we have it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're able to abound in hope. It can't happen if you're walking in the flesh, but if you're learning the Word and applying the Word and focused on the Word, and you develop that mental discipline to focus on the Word, to grab the Word, and to let that shape your, your mentality, then you can have hope and stability in any situation. And God, the Holy Spirit, is waiting to give it to you. But your job is to take the word and make it part of your mindset. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged and strengthened by what your word says, knowing what our destiny is, that that this is a training ground, and that we need to develop that, that mental discipline, that mental toughness, and that it's never too late, and that God the Holy Spirit is just waiting to strengthen us in that area so that we can face every day in a way that glorifies you and in a way that, that, that uh, demonstrates that, that hope that is in our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.